He runs as though the devil himself is in pursuit. And well he might, for he saw what no man has ever seen before. Just like the others. It's coming in on the west side. Look! There it is, on the roof! Three experts in science and security lead a band of men who try to find a way to exterminate X, the unknown terror. Only to find a tunnel of fear from which there is no escape. Dean Jagger as Professor Royston, top secret scientist. Edward Chapman, Elliot, in charge of lab operations. Leo McKern, Inspector McGill, security officer. Welcome to Bergcast, a podcast looking at all iterations of Nigel Neal's Quatermass stories on TV, film and radio. This time we're joined by actor and writer Gareth Preston as we take a sidestep to look at a Quatermass film without Nigel Neal or, frankly, well, um, without Quatermass, as Jimmy Sangster gives us his very own Royston and the Pit in Hammer's X the Unknown. Welcome, Gareth. Hello there. So I ask everyone uh, when they, they join us for an episode how they first became aware of Quatermass. Was it through the gateway drug that is Doctor Who or was it entirely separate? <laughs> uh, I think in my case it was a mixture. I mean, Doctor Who was definitely a part of it because I, I sort of started watching the late John Pertwee era. But I think the key Quatermass element was that my parents had the free Penguin paperbacks of Nigel Neal's uh, scripts. Mm. I still have them. I remember taking them off the shelf and they had those little, in the middle of the book, eight pages of black and white stills. Indeed. It just looked so, you know, haunting and mesmerising, these pictures. And when I eventually read the scripts, I, I just completely loved that kind of combination of science fiction and the occult that, that runs through them all to some extent. And, yeah, so I loved And then I saw the films and eventually... Through uh, tape in the days of VHS tape trading, finally got down to uh, seeing the TV series and l- lo- loved it all. Absolutely. But this isn't either Quatermass or a TV series, but it's <laughs> the film originally intended to be a sequel to the highly successful um, The Quatermass Experiment. But Nigel Neal, in such a huff for one, one hand about uh, the BBC using his character or what he saw as his character. Um, for the original film, then uh, refuses permission for the character to be used. So Hammer producer Tony Hines says to his production manager, well, go on, uh, we'll uh, 
workshops some ideas and then you go away you go away and write a script and this is the result it's very on brand for nigel neal to take his toys away and go home isn't it very much so <laughs> this is yeah this is early stuff uh, this is you know quatermass 2 is was out the year before this one came out and i think we know that hammer had already optioned a film of quatermass 2 before they even knew what what the tv series was but here they wanted to get in what they saw as the sequel with the joining the x from the quatermass experiment we have x the unknown and in america wasn't quatermass experiment called the creeping unknown indeed really? yeah yes i think so yeah this is a, a further callback but it's it has an interesting and slightly problematic uh genesis this because the director was Joseph Losey, who a uh, US director working in, in the UK, but he left the project ostensibly for health reasons, uh, but it was very, very close to the, um, to the shooting dates. And the story goes that Gene, Dean Jagger wouldn't work with a blacklisted director from Hollywood as Losey was. So Leslie Norman comes in, and according to most of the cast, is a git. Oh, really? <laughs> he certainly never works um, for Hammer again after this. And Michael Ripper, who plays the sergeant, Joseph said to him that he'd, he wanted to cast Victor Madden in that role rather than him, which is uh-huh. fine. Um, yes, which... I, for, for he, Leslie Norman later complained, he complained that the Anthony Hines interfered a lot. Now, this, this could have been Anthony Hines trying to tell Leslie Norman, hey, we have a certain way of working here. We're quite sort of, it's a family. We're mm. quite, so whether Leslie Norman took that the wrong way. Yeah, apparently he spent a lot of time swearing at, at the crew through a megaphone, which, you know, isn't exactly how things were done at Hammer, was it? Mm. No, it was, it was famous for being quite sort of friendly and gentlemanly. Indeed. We also have a US central star, and uh, in this case, Dean Again? Jack. Yep. On the end, this um, half because half the film's budget was provided. Well, if not RKO, then one of the producers of RKO uh, put the money out, but they went bust before they could distribute it in the US. So it was distributed by Warner Brothers in the US, but they paid pretty much for for Dean Jagger's salary on this as well. But we'll come on to that when we when we when we get on to um, to Which meeting. Quite substantial. To I, meeting I think his Dean Jagger's salary was about half the budget. I think you're right. Yeah, I think pretty much. Yeah, they put half the money up, which was Dean Jagger's salary. <laughs> which was allegedly, I think, about $30,000 or something. So that was he was paid as much as the rest of the production cost. Wow. I can't think of anything else that I've seen Dean Jagger in. Yeah. Well, he had a bit of cash. He had, he had won Best Supporting Oscar in 1950 for 12 o'clock high. Ah. And, and, and looking back through his career, it's a, he's basically he's a, he's a very good supporting character, you see. Most, it's re, this is actually unusual to have his name as the lead. He's generally playing a big supporting role in most of his films. Not dissimilar in stature to Brian Donlevy. Very different type of roles, but not in terms of... Um, yeah, similar, uh, similar that kind of, yes good sort of character american character actor we'll come on to his performance as we get to him but the opening i found um certainly the credit sequence but apart from the initial announcement of the, the titles the majority of the opening title sequence takes place with no music at all which i found very stark yes mm. i know i know it's, it's very low key isn't it it is yeah you get mm. supposedly natural sounds obviously they've been they've been added on but uh yeah, it's um, yeah, the, I mean, the, and there is a decent score uh, that runs uh, the, 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 that runs through the film. But yeah, quite a stark opening with um, just the bird call and 
lonely wilderness of... Uh, of yeah, it's, of, of, it's, of it's, it's quite a good sort of tease because it starts off in this quite sort of like sinister way with the clicking of the, re- of the Geiger counter and this lone figure in a fairly barren-looking landscape. We pull back and we realise, oh, it's an exercise. It's, it's a nice start and it's a, a young Anthony Newley that he is the corporal. Mm. Famously also, he also wrote Goldfinger. Yeah, they're all taking part in uh, learning how to use a Geiger counter. Now, it's odd, they, they're not wearing much in the way of protective clothing, and throughout this film, radiation isn't treated in the same way as we, as, as we, as we understand it now. It's like if you, put it in a, if you put it in a box, the area is deemed safe. No one's going this, this is This is quite interesting, actually, because, as you know, recently I took a deep dive into looking at Godzilla, actually, the original Japanese 1954 movie, which I think sounds counterintuitive, but there are lots of ways in which this parallels or contradicts or is different to X the Unknown. And Godzilla has a lot of stuff about radiation about in it mm. because you've got this atomic monster that's woken by an atomic bomb and comes from the sea and it's thousands of years old and it's woken up by an atomic bomb so therefore it's not only pissed off it's radioactive and so this fallout on one half of the island and you have characters saying quite intelligent things about how fallout works or rather assuming how fallout works Assuming how Fallout works and, and assuming that you know how Fallout works, because if you're Japanese in 1954 mm. and old enough to watch a science fiction movie, you know how Fallout works. And that's mm. it, comparing that. To the, I mean, there's some other things as well that I probably want to think about in terms of the role of the maverick scientist in science fiction of this era as well. But we can talk about that a bit later. Essentially, though, it was really starkly interesting to see that we're a nuclear country, but the writers don't really have a particularly good idea of what radiation does or how it works. No, no indeed. Anyway, uh, they're about to finish their exercise in how to use a Geiger counter, and one of their number, Private Lansing, a young Kenneth Cope, recognised in there, wants to have oh, his yes. go. Yeah, wants to have his go, and he's not very good uh, with it as well. However, he finds an alternative source of, of radiation much to the chagrin of Anthony Newley and his companion Haggis, who's a, Dow- <laughs> a dour Scotsman very much in the, the John Laurie in, in Dad's Army role would be in, uh, in, mm. in, in just over 10 oh, years. Haggis. Just 10 years' time. But he's played by Ian McNaughton, who would find um, success on the other side of the camera. He's producer of Q and Monty Python. Oh. I thought I recognised the name. Yeah, something you see at the end of the famous brrrr, at the end of Monty Python is produced by Ian McNaughton. But yeah, there being an absolutely dour and, gr- and grumpy Scott. So there's an alternative source of radiation found and causes some uh, consternation. And uh, the Major is called, who's played uh, by John Harvey, who's Professor Brett in Doctor Who's story, The, the War Machines, if anyone's paying attention. Um, <laughs> But something weird happens and there is an explosion under the ground where this source of radiation is and an X-shaped fissure appears in the ground and Lansing, another soldier who goes to help him, is knocked to the ground and injured. That other soldier, by the way, while we're spotting, is Edwin Richfield, who, as well as two famous roles in Doctor Who, turns up in Quatermass too. Good spot there. Yeah. But we then cut to the atomic energy establishment, which we later learn is also nearby which is 
which is handy. Um, lots of scientists <laughs> working, including who will be our main action hero of the piece, Peter, who's the director of the establishment's son. And we'll come on to lots of to lots of fun with him later. By the way, he's played by, by William Lucas of Black Beauty fame. I compared this scene a lot to the opening scene with Quatermass going into the experimental rocket group in Quatermass 2 because it's, it's someone walking in being grumpy saying stop doing that uh, and, and as, as I think you've said before we're still in the role of the of the maverick scientist because then we cut to yeah, um, yeah. It, cut it's, to, it's a plot line that isn't really followed up we have this stuff established about oh, I don't want my son to be a scientist yeah. and then that kind of gets forgotten about well, given he tries to mollycoddle his son and as we'll see throughout the film his son is constantly put in danger often by Royston <laughs> I like to think it's possibly the ultimate trolling of, of the director if, as Royston and the director <laughs> don't get on as he seemingly tries to kill his son at every, <laughs> every opportunity but we cut to well, who will be our hero of the piece Adam Royston now he's in a workshop which took me a while to work out where the workshop is because you assume initially well I assumed initially it was part of the establishment but it's, mm. it, seems to be, it seems to be some distance away, although at least walking distance, although not a convenient walking distance. But anyway, he's working on these pair of scanners that, that rotate in sync to neutralise any, any radioactive material that might come in handy. And well, that will come in very handy later. Uh, it's a good thing he's working on. But I think the crucial thing that you see for this is you see our central character, our Quatermass figure, unambiguously as a scientist. Um, mm. A man, a man, ensconced in research, and also having you know fairly innocent, uh, relaxed chat with a security guard. He's already established as a softer figure than Don Levy's Quatermass, but he's also established as a scientist and immediately and quite a, and and um, and, uh, an anti-authoritarian. Yeah, which seems to be the way we like Quatermass. He's sort of he's fighting against the system in a little way. I think it's that it's probably more that general thing that the hero has to be a maverick, whether he's a policeman or a scientist or a soldier. Yeah, the the, the idea of the, the you know you've got the maverick scientist and the other big trope is the one man who knows the truth even though no one believes him. Mm. And these are like the two main heroes you have in this sort of thing on the whole. And it's really interesting to see this trope in 50s sci-fi because I think I'm not sure if I'm I'm right here but 50s sci-fi is where it lives on the whole, isn't it generally? Yeah. Well, I think you, you carry on having um, maverick scientists and often the one person who knows the truth. I think that's a trope that's carried on right up yeah. to today's films, I think. You know, look at, if you must look at Rampage, you've probably got a similar character turning up there. And yes, they- indeed. And obviously this is a thing in recent Godzilla movies and stuff like that. And that sort of thing just follows through, I guess. But it's it's home is in 50s sci-fi. It's sort of, it comes from there, mm. I think. It's not something that's really been a thing before that, and I wonder why. We were a critical mass post-war with sort of science being, and seen or scientists, sort even in maverick scientists, being seen as a, for the first time a touchstone. Indeed. Combined with sort of mass media entertainment, I mean, you could argue that Victorian scientists. Yeah. Can be a trope, yeah, plus we, we, no we've had the Second World War, and, yeah. and, and and science has moved. It's become more industrialized. It's moved away from the gentle naturalist. Yes, it's someone who does it for a job. Mm. Mm. So Royston has been summoned to see the director, who's Edward Chapman. But doesn't he look like Peter Craze? Mm. Jack. He keeps expecting him to go. Do. <laughs> 
but he play and he plays that sort of role who chides uh, he chides Royston for wasting Peter's time but as, as you say that isn't really um a thread that gets developed as, as 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 well it might I don't really see what having Peter as the director's son adds uh, he shows some concern at the end but no more than he than he might do anyway. I don't think it really has it has the pull. Whether that was in an earlier draft and that got cut back, um, that 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 element, but yeah, I'm not sure it works. Anyway, uh, the director informs um, Royston that the army has a, a bit of an issue, um, and he and he goes down to investigate. So the action cuts back to um, where where the army were, and Royston uh, is investigating this the X shaped fissure, um, but he finds no radiation, which obviously was the uh, the main reason that think they found it in the first place, but the two soldiers that were that were caught that were caught in the explosion both have severe radiation burns, and on the second one on the back on Edwin Richfield's character, he even maps the shape of the soldier's gun butt to the. Uh, to the, to, the, to the marks of his back and you know when you see radiation burns and we'll we'll come on to far far more graphic examples in the, in the film the film later but you know you we're starting to get towards elements of you know not just body horror but you know real um, stuff as well this is this is what people might might be expected to see mm. Yes, it's a bit of a, I mean, because uh, Quater Mass Experiment had featured a lot of mangled bodies as a result of the creature, all withered and drained, and you can always think, Jimmy Sankster thinking, oh, that, that's part of that Quater Mass formula, you've got to see, you've got to see mangled bodies as evidence of the monster. Yeah, but in here, it's, this is inherently man-made, this is all, this is, you know, what, well, this is, I know, I know, I know. It's from a monster, um, but this is this is radiation. This is everything. Something that, that that we have as well that we're experimenting with, and this is something I think the film comes back to time and time again is a proxy for what is man doing with with this new angled rate radiation, and this is this is what it does to people. That's a, yes, it's, it's a, yes. a real thing. Um, the major later on gives a, a press briefing to um, to members of the press who all do that thing of like talking over each other and then asking a question the moment he tries to answer the previous one so no one no one finds out anything nevertheless they use it as a as as, as an info dump and we learn that lansing uh, the young naive soldier from the from the first scene has, has has died and they make a point of stating that he's a national serviceman rather than a professional soldier uh, which, mm. I, which i found interesting they made need to that is that because they wanted to make it I don't know, like, to say to, to, to men watching this, this could be you. Um, and the manger gets defensive when he said there's nothing, you know, the only reason he died because he was a national serviceman is because he was nearest the explosion. But I wondered if there was something I was missing there as about why you would make a point of saying he's a national serviceman. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it could be at the time national servicemen did die on sort of like a, sometimes, and it might well have been felt that that, that was... Uh, a black mark against the scheme. I was wondering, is it, yeah, is it is it a protest from saying, do you re- should you really be doing this? Mm. Yes. So Royston tells the major that he he'll need more equipment to do a more thorough job on on looking at what the nature of the fisher is, and he'll come back tomorrow. I like the fact he's got, though it's not really dealt with in the scene. He's got Peter with him already, having just been told to leave Peter alone by the by, by the director. And then been sent out on this on this on this mission. He doesn't want to be sent out on. He's dragged Peter with him. I think that's a lovely, <laughs> a lovely bit of trolling. He, he tells the major to keep a couple of men on guard um, overnight to keep to keep people away and from fall, from falling in. The major says it's just easier to put a couple keep out sign and rope the area off. And then um, 
we get the first sign of something more sinister when um, they don't know how how deep the fissure is because it's beyond the the limitations of the, of the equipment. There's something a bit uh, you know something a bit devilish about that, isn't there? Mm. And on the way back, they have, we're there, we then have a nice sort of info dump scene roundup between between Peter and Royston in the back of the car when he thinks there's still danger there because the radiation was there and now it's not. The implication being the source of the radiation has moved. Yeah, it is a very expositional script. It's very, it's 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 very functional. Yeah, I think it's it, this this is thanks to learning. He's got, I mean, he's never written a script before. He's he's a production manager. Uh, he's now learning sort of the structure of. I think you, you can and you, you can see that. But there's a lovely bit. I think I think he has the structure down. To be honest, I mm. mean, the, the, my main my main comment on it because um, I saw it for the first time today. Uh, my main comment on it is how efficient this film is, just generally how it's it doesn't feel so much crafted as tooled. Mm, you know what I mean? Man. It is made made to be an efficient working horror film everything is polished all the cogs are in place and the exposition there is there isn't a wasted moment in it really there's there isn't there isn't anything like an unnecessary romantic subplot or anything everything is there to service this idea of the monster and and the threat and really everything else is uh, stripped away. It does make you appreciate Nigel Neal's skill as a writer, that he can take this kind of very, a genre that lends itself to rather plotty, expositional dialogue, and he can put character into it and humour yeah, and make it uh, a lot more interesting on the ear. There's a lovely bit at the end of the scene where um, they pull out to look at the uh, rather alarmed... Um, face of the chauffeur as he's talking about unnamed horrors and don't your imagination run away with you which I which I, which, I quite <laughs> like. which, so, which which passes for character development <laughs> that, that, Neil, that Neil hasn't got and, but as the car speeds away into the night we pass it pass away, it passes um, two two young lads out in the woods uh, for a dare um, really, that is brutal it is yeah it is mm. utterly brutal and Willie and Ian Bing. It is. It, uh, I'm quite impressed with the film that it, it, it unsentimentally kills a kid. You know. Yeah, yeah. It, make, it makes the threat real. They're there, there for a dare. Uh, Willie is dared to go to the old tower to see if uh, is it old Tom uh, Tramp. That's old there. Tom. So he sleeps there every night, and Willie approaches, but as he goes, we don't see anything. But we, sorry, but he 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 sees something, and we get that you know the. Got a favourite of a POV shot of, of the monster, and crucially, uh, the crackle of what would be a Geiger counter radiation. Obviously, there isn't a Geiger counter there, but that doesn't matter. There's something very, you know, and Willie just turns and runs and runs straight past Ian, paying no attention, and Ian has to run to catch him up. Ian, of course, there, a, a very young Fraser Hines. Mm. Who famously did uh, an ad lib. Which he, uh, when he was filming filming that bit, he, the which he talks about in his uh, autobiography. Oh, is that the uh, three minutes? The change. That's the right. Is it? That's yeah, the that's one. That, well, that, I didn't know that was an ad lib. That's nice. Yes. You'll wait here. I'll wait for five minutes. Three minutes. Good luck, Willie. Yeah, that's it. And apparently there was a, he got a big laugh from the film crew. Oh, good. And, uh, and then and Leslie Norman 
sort of thought about it and decided, yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that again and, and say say it again. Great, that's good. So that was, you know, that was a stroke to the early ego, Fraser Hines. Gosh, okay. <laughs> you know, bl- blame for that. <laughs> so the next day, um, Royston's been called in by by Dr. Kelly to see Willie in hospital because, despite running away very quickly, Willie has first degree radiation burns. Um, they meet um, Willie's parents, uh, who obviously are, are dumbfounded as to as to what's happened. He hasn't said anything. He hasn't regained consciousness since he since since he got home, so he has to go talk to talk to Ian. And uh, Royston then goes to the church, which is where Ian is. Vicar has the marvelous the actor playing the vicar has the marvelous name Brown Darby. <laughs> no name. The, I've seen him in is it the Omega Factor? It's probably been loads, loads of stuff, but I recognise him from there. And there's a lovely sort of little human bit where Royston has to has to get get the truth out of out of Ian, and he doesn't want to say because they've sworn an oath. But he has to persuade him by saying, like, you know, that's when that's that's when mm. he was, Willie was well, but now Willie's sick. He'd want you. He'd want he'd, he'd want you to tell to tell him where they were last night. So so Royston can investigate. And you can't imagine Don Levy doing that. Don Levy would just beat the kid up until he told him. <laughs> It, it, what is particularly interesting, though, although that is that actually, although the script and the character are very different, the performance and the intonation and the way in which the dialogue is delivered is actually quite like Brian Don Levy. You know, he's clearly he's clearly here in order to be a Brian Don Levy proxy. Yeah. Mm. But he sort of twists it. He makes um, Royston a lot more. More of an academic, really. He's he's definitely a softer, more human. Almost oh, certainly, yeah. So Royston goes to the to the tower uh, in daylight. It's abandoned, and there's you know detritus everywhere. He pops upstairs, and he finds a man asleep, which appears to be, as far as we can tell, old Tom. And old Tom mm-hmm. is woken up, uh, and then goes. And gets a glass that he's put under a, a, a dripping tap of a barrel, and then offers Royston a dram of some of, of some of, of some of that. What is that? Are we saying that's whiskey? Why is it dripping? Well, it's, it's a dram. A, it's a sort of. I, mean, I was guessing it was a kind of moonshine whiskey. Oh, he's, it's something like a hooch. He's he's brewed himself. I'm guessing right, that's okay. what it is. Ah, okay, yeah. But the way he's yeah, because he's he oh yeah, because he's he then uh, bemoans that it's overflowing, so he has to put another you know the glass because it's, it's uh, presumably just a, a faulty tap. Anyway, he's he offers him some of his some of his hooch, um, but before he does that, uh, Royston sees the um, the container from his experiment on the shelf and like freaks out and says, "You can't touch that. It's it's highly radioactive." Yeah. He said, "Yeah, it was just it's I just found it I just I just, I just found it lying around here, and of course it isn't radioactive." It's totally harmless, which I didn't get when well, I think the first time I watched this, and I had to go back because when we cut, we then cut to Royston going back to his to workshop that's been ransacked, and the sources of radiation have been stolen, violently, violently taken, even though there's no sign of forced entry into the room. But at this point, I still thought that 
uh, Royston's workshop was in the Atomic Research Centre. Yeah, it's, it's not entirely clear, the geography. No. Well, we, it, I think it becomes later when they just then have to say on, it, on a map, here it is, here it show the, the movements movements of the, of, of the creature. But I was then wondering, well, if, he's got, if, if it's after radiation, why hasn't it gone for the you know, material in the, in, in, in the research centre? But I guess that's because it's not meant to be there. But he amusingly and deadpanly, with almost British subtlety, Let's look at the fact that there's some. There's clearly been a violent intruder who hasn't disturbed any door or window. Mm. So we then have a the ghost. arrival of Mr. McGill, played by Leah McKern, from uh, into the internal security at the Atomic Energy Division, who's a policeman but not a policeman, um, to investigate uh, crime taking place uh, on uh, on atomic research on a research property obviously the director isn't isn't happy about this but he's clearly been one of the good guys because he automatically sides with with Royston even before he meets him and mm-hmm. su- suggests that they, they they work together and they already make sort of easier bedfellows than he's, he's the Lomax figure isn't he from the from, yeah. from the Quatermass yes. films yeah it's, it's a terrific performance I mean Leo McCurd has got this kind of gruff, charming characters down to a fine art, and he's just immensely watchable whenever he's on screen. In fact, it's interesting. I mean, you can't imagine uh, making a film now with like two middle-aged men, sort of like as the central heroes driving it along. No, because you have to have the third lead as Peter to do the action stuff. It's curious that they have, mm. ne- neither of them is there as any action material needed. But in with Lomax's role, certainly within um, the, certainly the first Quatermass film, I find, but in, in, in particular, he's he's the heart of the piece. You need him because often the viewer is, does not warm to, to Don Levy. Whatever the strengths of uh, the roles of, of Quatermass in that, you have you have um, Lomax as the as the viewer identification figure more than more than Quatermass. And I suppose yeah, that's definitely. that's what McGill is 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 here as well. But because Royston is a is a warmer figure. It isn't quite isn't quite the same dynamic. No, it's not quite the same need for him. He he remains an excellent an excellent character, and, and you know for that kind of tell me explain that to me in simple terms, Professor. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Character, he's uh, perfect at that. Yeah. What would the viewer say? <laughs> so they both go. They both return return to the hospital, and yeah, we find out we find out Wally Wally the child has died. And the, the father's rant uh, at Royston, which is about you know, he, scientists should be locked up for, for meddling things they, you know, that can potentially destroy destroy the world. It, it's, it's one of the few parts in the film where there's actually sort of a sincere emotional beat, actually. Yeah. Well, it's, mm. it's seemingly a proxy for all public anxiety over, over atomic power and, and the bomb. Dr. Royston, isn't it? Mr. Hiding, however... There's nothing you can say will help. I know about you, Dr. Royston. You're a scientist, not a doctor. You don't look after the sick. You meddle with things that kill, like they killed my boy in there. You should be locked up, Royston. Locked up with others like you, letting off bombs you can't control. You're not safe. You're a murderer. The whole pacing of Willie's death in the film is particularly interesting it's i i i I've, i'll be honest watching it today um for the first time i found myself thinking actually it's kind of cynical and it's not cynical in the way that nigel neal is cynical it's cynical because it's actually manipulating the audience 
because you know the kid's not there and he's in hospital he's sick you know you have every reason in a film in 1954 to think that the kid's going to get better and then he doesn't that is a bit of a shock to actually kill uh, a young child you're not like you say then you're not expecting them to do it but you've already you've already had that seeded though um the soldiers died Yes, because he gets he gets burnt on the back. There's that wonderful bit where they like hold the rifle against ah, the burn no, on his uh, no, back not, and see the template of it. Sure, not him though. That's Edwin Richfield's character. Oh, Kenneth Cope's character is killed. Yeah. Um, oh right. Yeah. Yeah. So we've already seeded that you can be killed by just proximity to to, to, to this thing. Um, it's certainly a bold move to do it for the kid. I'm not sure it completely comes out of the blue though. It's you know. He doesn't. You no. see that the stuff. You, having already established, you know, there's Edward Mitchell's back, but here you've got it on the kid's chest. You know, this is a more serious case. You know that it's already killed one person, and now the stakes are really high because you know a child has died. All bet. This is a thing that kills kids as well. This 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 means business. This is bad. Uh, it's a it's a, it's a it's a step up in step up in the stakes. Yes. But we have a a curious interlude. Uh, around this moment at the hospital when a character called Unwin whether he's a, an orderly or a radiologist um, the radiologist yes yeah he for scene that only exists to have the most horrific death scene in the film he but also a scene that exists so you can get a bit of gratuitous sexual content as well <laughs> but it does so, seem that way. It, it seems as though somebody read the script and said it's not just no women in it. It's the, <coughs> um, he, as it, Unwin, um, arranges a, an intimate encounter with the, a nurse, but the nurse is foreign uh, and seemingly seductive. And because mm. uh, Unwin is seduced by her charms, and they start to have a tryst the creature arrives to, to, to steal the radiation that's, that's or the radioactive material that's, that's in the room and he kills Unwin and we see him, we see initially that we, there's the, the hands expand to like a fanned Oh, twat. that is gross, yeah. That's, that's, and that then is you see his face eaten away. And, and then stuff. you see his face eaten away. And what we made me think of, have you watched um, Chernobyl, the HBO Sky series? On that as well, they have in the uh, when they're investigating and they go and see the technicians in hospital. The final one, you don't see his face because it's and like Emma Watson as she leaves just said his face is gone. And even one of the guys you do see that the face is hideously burnt away and he's he's melting. You know, it's is the you know the the structure of his body is breaking down because of the attack of radiation. And it made me think of that. And this is you know this is trying to do shock horror um, in 1956. But the face melting away is is very true, of, you know, of severe prolonged radiation sickness. Maybe mm. that has a, I had an, an extra had an extra frisson of, of fear because of that. But the main reason yeah. that the creature was there was to was to to steal to steal the radium, and it's taking it out of a safe, which he's burnt burnt a hole in. The nurse is too tra- traumatized to to, to to speak. So not only is she a harlot and foreign, she's unreliable. It's a horrible <laughs> yeah, it, it is kind of that old horror film morality comes in there with unmarried people trysting, and then the monster comes along. I think it's crucial she's not she's not British either. Yes. <laughs> she's not not to be trusted. But it's then uh, that having 
already seen that his um, whatever it is that's ransacked his his workshop. Royston also sees that the only way whatever it is could have got into this room to, to the to the radiation room is through a grill, and the grill hasn't moved. So whatever it is has moved through the grill. In the same way that it probably worked, it probably moved under his his workshop door. So whatever it is, it can. Move. Well, apparently, this is the only place it could come in. The grill doesn't open. It's cemented to the wall. Came in through the grill. But, Adam, that's impossible. Whatever it was that did all this certainly wasn't small enough to come through there. Well, how small is 10,000 gallons of oil? What do you mean? Now, 10,000 gallons of oil would take up a pretty large area, wouldn't it? Uh, and yet 10,000 gallons of oil could come through the holes in that grill, couldn't it? Yes, it could. Then that's the way it got into my workshop. It came in under the door. You know, obviously, this thing can take up any shape it needs to. This is before the blob, isn't it? Mm, it is. It yeah. uh, predates the blob by a couple of years. Yeah. Yes, it's up there. But Royston thinks that the the creature's probably gone back 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 to the fissure now, and luckily that there are no men uh, have been left on have been have been left on uh, on guard as he as he suggested to the major. Oh, um, about that. Yeah. Actually, yeah, there are. How does how does McGill know that? It's McGill um, that points it out. To, oh, actually, you say that he did. How do you know? You've even met the major. Has he met him first? So he put, put people on guard. Uh, to, to be honest, the film's moving so fast at this point that no one notices a plot hole like that. No. To be honest, it's just. I must. I, I. I'd concur there. I must admit, I hadn't quite that hadn't uh, connected with me. It's only me that obsesses about these things. <laughs> so, so we we cut to the two men that have been put on, and that's. Anthony Newley and Neil. It's the writer of Gold. It's the writer of Goldfinger, the song, and and the producer of Monty Python have been put on. Um, <laughs> have been put on guard duty. And they're not happy about it. And there's an attempt, and I think this comes back to what what you said earlier, Gareth, about um, how good Nigel Neal is at sort of character building, world building through the minutiae of the of the dialogue of of you know, ordinary people. Uh, Secondary, you know, minor characters that you know make make this more real. That there's sort of yes. an attempt here when they talk about why don't we go to Glasgow on our next forty eight, and it, it doesn't it doesn't quite hit in the same way. It seems yeah, know, it, it, it seems too you, you can see the attempt. It is a you know it's a decent attempt. You can see what's a little bit of colour, and to make you feel sorry for them before horrible things are about to befall them. Sure, because it's such it's such a wonderful wonderfully classic 50s horror movie way it's like hey haggis come down here ah off scoff camera and you do feel <laughs> sorry for anton yuley because at least ian mcnaughton gets a die off camera anthony julie has to like drop his drop his gun and, and scream like right at the cameras and then go under it as whatever it is whatever it is engulfs him and that's that's an absolutely thankless task where are you haggis haggis So then the major and the rest of our heroes arrive, uh, but there's no sign of there's no sign of uh, haggis or spider. 
um, but a, but a, you know, a damaged forage cap to show the to to to, to show their fate. So Royston yes. then gets all the main characters together, so he can very carefully explain what's going on. Uh, and you're and uh, Gareth, you're right there. McGill does a very good job of saying. I'm not very clever. Explain this to me in great detail. <laughs> it works. <laughs> but does it by sound? Does it in a way that makes him seem very charming and very clever? Absolutely. Oh no, he's he's mm. you know, between Sangster and perhaps with yeah. um, with the Emmercurns. The Emmercurns. Yeah, I love the idea comes out here that because um, uh, Royston talks about that it's an intelligence. I mean, in some ways, we're back to the formless formless intelligence. Of Quatermass experiment that uh, that becomes that the the, the uh, vegetable creature, but I, I love that idea of it. And he talks about oh, it's it's ancient in it's it's quite Lovecraftian. It's this ancient intelligence from down beneath the earth that's rising up, and it indicates possibly a, a more interesting way the film could have gone. And mm. if the um, the mud monster perhaps done a bit of possession or in some way we could have shown it was more than just an animal going after uh food it, it was it it was a sort of a being a, a thinking being of some kind yeah yes, it's indeed because it doesn't actually display a whole lot of actual intelligence does it deep all of this is room. is a parallel with with Quatermass, particularly the hammer Quatermass films in as much as you have Quatermass making certain leaps of deduction that perhaps a real scientist or a scientist in a BBC series wouldn't necessarily make in order to make the plot come on. And these are Lovecraftian leaps in the way they are. These are the sort of leaps that characters in Lovecraft stories do make. So I think the Lovecraftian um, parallel actually holds quite nicely here. There's an interesting point they make about this has been happening for some time and every it's every 50 years or so sort of you know, gravitational pull um, favors that they they can they can they can reach the surface whereas the whereas this inter, you know, intelligence that needs radiation if it doesn't get radiation dissipates and dies now that however the difference is there are sources of radiation within within reach. Um, again, showing the dangers of the atomic age. They've given they've given sustenance to to, to, to terrors from beyond. Well, sorry, from from from, mm-hmm. from below the surface. And crucially, Royston says he doesn't know what to do about it, even though he's building a machine that that t- that takes radioactivity <laughs> away from things. Now I was thinking. Yes, I, I mean, that, I've got an idea. I've I'm got an sure idea what you can do. A lot of genre. Uh, well, a lot of cinema goers would have kind of said, "Oh, hang on, you you put that gun on the mantelpiece, like in the first act, and we remember that." Chekhov is screaming at the telly there, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. And but sorry, but the director calls bullshit almost, and just says, "This is yeah, this is." He does what actually people would do in that case, and goes, "You've made a huge, you've made a huge leap." to want to talk about this and, and, I, and, I, and I'm and I'm leaving but then they, I suppose they have this, the, the sensible option of like well we don't know what else to do we know it kills people we know being in its being in its proximity um, is, is fatal but I can't think of anything so let's just go and dangle ourselves down the fissure and try and have a look at it <laughs> um, 
I assume so they can see what it is. But given that they've mm. already made a huge leap, which for the sake of a, um, a, a rapidly moving plot is correct, uh, I'm not entirely sure what, what they hope to do with it. But anyway, who's going to be stupid enough to go down? Oh, wait, Peter is, because he volunteers <laughs> for it. Oh, he says he volunteered for it. I reckon he was pretty much blackmailed into it by, by Royston, who's trying to kill him to annoy the director. But that's that's just my that's my reading of this of this <laughs> amusing amusing subplot because they lower Peter down um, and as they lower him down there's yeah there's good tension there's close up it's 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 it, it, a very uh, quite an atmospheric scene this absolutely yeah, and like he sees um, he sees that the 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 uh, skull of one of the one, one one of the soldiers which is which is nicely done but I like the bit of, just to, to create a bit of tension the uh, the technicians who are lowering him down just just slip and let go and he plummets a bit as well oh, yeah, you need but, a, you know, but, it's nice to have a plummet in a film like this it is it, but it also has the other effect of just uh, just making uh, so much of the British establishment seem sort of is incompetent I know, I'm looking into, perhaps <laughs> but you've already you've already had the comedy soldiers that will try and get out of anything now you have the slightly incompetent technicians who will uh, and as we'll see later on at the end, uh, a technician that pulls a very convenient sickie to try and get Peter back in the back in the firing line again. But anyway, Peter's lowered down to a certain level, and then his Gaga counter goes off the scale, and we have a nice tense moment where we don't see anything; we just hear the crackle of the from the Gaga counter, and he screams, "Get he screams, get me out of here!" And they've got to winch him quickly, and the monster's coming. It I, does work very. It is a very effective scene. So they just about get get Peter away, but he won't talk about it, which I th- which for me undermines a bit. It was like he's trying to like, but they're just like, no, don't worry, just just you know, put him in the car and take him away. And like, I don't know what it was. It was a nightmare. It was like, I don't, it's it, I feel that fall that that fall falls a bit flat after a really really good effective, you know, tension tension in getting him out. It's just like oh, get him away. Um, but the the majors got a uh, got orders. Um, to blow up flame and uh, seal the fissure with concrete. But isn't it meant to be phenomenally deep? Mm, I like, didn't really couldn't... know what the uh, concrete was going to rest on. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen, you know, have you ever seen concrete poured into an abandoned termite mine? Nest, sorry. <laughs> there's a there's a one where they've, um, they wanted to look at um, how intricate a termite's nest was. They found that there was an abandoned one, and they poured several tons of concrete into it, waited for it to dry, and then and then dug it out so they could look at the shape of a termite's nest, and it was vast. Uh, mm. and, and it was no, I hadn't seen that. It, it's, it's, it was also you know, scarily symmetrical, given these are made by you know, millions of individual creatures. Um, but it made me think of that, and just how like if you haven't adequately said how deep this thing goes but you know it's potentially kilometers just how much concrete have you got but they, they, they do it in a few hours and then smooth it and then smooth it over but you know that's not that's not really gonna work is it very and there's a, a nice no. scientists always want a complicated answer the military have got something nice and simple 
which will be a, a call forward to the Brigadier from Doctor Who, I thought. So the next day, McGill goes to see Royston, who's repairing his workshop, and obviously tells him what we all know, that concrete won't prove very effective for a, a creature that's burrowed up through thousands of metres worth of worth of, worth of rock. Um, but he, while he's rebuilding, and while McGill's telling him he sadly got to go back, back to London, we get a reinforcement of um, uh, Royston's experiment, just so we... Just so we just so we know what know what can't be, might be coming, but then <laughs> we cut back to the fissure and the concrete cracks o- cracks open and we see the creature for the first time. Which um, what do we think of that? It's it's mud. It's it's it's, mud. it's hard really to see what more they could do. I mean, it, it's a sentient blob of mu- mass of mud. Yes. It's. Uh, I mean, if if they were doing it now with CGI, you can imagine they could kind of morph it into sort of suits and limbs and stuff coming out of it. But I mean, uh, you'd seen in recent Doctor Who, you know that sort of thing is a thing mm. that they do. Sure. As, I mean, compare it to as we will do in what, a year later to the to the to the aliens in in, in at the end of Quatermass Two, the the Hammer film, uh, as we'll cover next time, viewers. Listeners, really um, but um, it's it's not dissimilar to that. It's blobby. It's blobby. It's, it's, it's it's easy to do in what uh, uh, re- relatively speaking, it's something you can film in slow motion. Something you can film and insert. Something you can do in model shot or in live. Um, but yeah, I think particularly in the light, and you generally because this is a film. It's a very black and white film. A film ostensibly set at night, apart from a, 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 a few a, a few scenes. Um, it's something that can work well in model shot. It's something that can work well in close up. So yeah, as a, a visual thing, I think it's it's quite effective, and you can't. I think it. it is quite an effective uh, result. I mean, we'll, we'll we'll no doubt come soon, but there's a some of the scenes later on towards the climax are, are, are very effective model shots of this seething wall of mud. Oh, and in the. Um... The now ubiquitous sound of uh, the crackling Gaga counter, even though there isn't a Gaga counter anywhere near him, but it doesn't matter just of the effectiveness of this creature's radioactive. This it, creature. it does, that definitely helps. And James Bernard's music as well yeah. helps bring a bit of ominousness to it that uh, uh, a blob of mud on its own can't really affect. But with, with the music and that crackling effect, it does seem like it's a, a, a threat. So McGill, we next see him at the police station as he's phoning to ask his boss, can he have one more night and go back? Um, who, and he apparently acquiesces. But at the same time, there's a call put through to the to the, the police station uh, about a car crash, and uh, McGill overhears the the, uh, the sergeant saying that apparently people inside have melted. So we know um, X is back. Um, X and uh, sorry, McGill goes to the car and finds. Um, oh, we haven't mentioned before. Sorry, at the in the workshop and on the in the the radiation room in the hospital, there's a residue, um, which is used. So there's a callback for this, where McGill sees the car and sees the residue. So we know it's we know it's the creature. In case some other um, entity that melts <laughs> was was wandering was wandering around near Inverness, um, we de- we definitely know. Um, so Royston, who can't get hold of the director for some reason, even though he seems to be there, 
I'm not sure how that works, has, has made the not unreasonable leap that uh, the creature, as it wants radioactive material, will come for the research centres, not in considerable supply of um, cobalt, uh, which isn't radioactive in itself, but is used in radioactive um, industry, I believe. You make it radioactive, it's cobalt 60, as I read on Wikipedia um, earlier, <laughs> to, try and, to try and look clever didn't work anyway um he wants that move because he thinks that's what the that that's what the creature will come for the director then just turns up and absolutely loses it and i thought i thought he would be like he's going to fire mcgill uh, sorry going to fire royston at this at this moment but mcgill saves the day by phoning up and saying some people have melted um so the creature's still <laughs> the creature's still around so very quickly the director comes right back on side, right? Doesn't miss a trick. All right, yeah, sure, that's fine. You can use the map in my room, and then they do that slightly painstaking thing of drawing a straight line of where the where the creature where the creature's been, and then said, "Oh, there's us in the way." <laughs> <That's> not, <laughs> which is, I think, it's trying to add tension, but by drawing a straight line, I think there's here's the plot. <laughs> here's what I'm one, line two, line three, oh, and we're in we're in trouble, and then. Within, I think, a minute of, of that scene, um, X has a, the the creature has 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 attacked the gate, and the guard has suffered a, a, a similar fate uh, without being uh, seduced by a foreign nurse, and he seems melted. But he but he he he, he raises the alarm, uh, and Royston, realizing he's not going to get the cobalt out, he's concerned with with evacuating um, everyone and getting, getting them to safety. And again, you wouldn't see Don Levy doing that, would you? <laughs> anyway, the creature. Uh, attacks and Peter goes up on the roof to have a look, and we get a nice sort of model shot of the of the oozing of the oozing mass coming at the, yeah. at the, at the, at the our, our first kind of proper yeah view of, of the uh, of the monster, and crucially the first time that someone has seen it who doesn't immediately die, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is which is probably helpful. It absorbs the cobalt they're trying to get out, but Royston thinks that'll make it unstable because um, cobalt is, is apparently quite unstable. That's why they use it because uh, it's, it's a short half-life. But the creature enlarges as it as it as it absorbs uh, the cobalt. But Royston thinks it's going to head back to the fissure, which is which is lucky. Presumably, it's a bit sleepy after a big after a big <laughs> meal. Uh, once that's why you would be, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> That's, 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 that's fair enough um, but he because he thinks it'll take the same path back um, he tells you know, the army to keep an eye on it and clear a path and make sure everyone's everyone gets out of the way meanwhile he's going to go he's going to go back to his to his workshop and hopefully work on a plan that's probably going to involve those those scanner those radiation neutralising scanners you've got there Adam <laughs> but, but what do I know um, then we try and have some more human drama as the the arm is using a helicopter to track the creature as it goes back and we see locals being evacuated into the church uh, there's some you know some stuff with some stuff with the policeman um, but there's I don't quite get this maybe you know as well the soldiers in the in the helicopter say oh it's changed direction it's not going where it's supposed to be but beyond uh, the policeman having to go down a side street does that have any real effect? Does anything really happen with that? We're told when they're evacuating, the, sorry, evacuating into the church uh, that it's going to come near that wall. 
And then, you know, there's the, the drama with the, oh, God, there's the world's worst mother has left her kid outside. <laughs> and you had one job. Oh, like, oh no, bro, fool I know. She's got 18 kids in there and she's just left. Oh, yeah, one of them, one of them's missing. Um, but the, but the, the, the blob comes through, the ex, the creature comes through the, the wall as, as predicted. And the vicar gets, the vicar gets away and the kids are right. They're not going to kill two kids in this. Don't you know, there's, there are limits. Um, but yes, it's a nice it. heroic moment there for for Brown Derby. Yes, glad so. Yeah, he gets he gets it rather than the mother. Was, yeah, yeah. Um, but and, they make uh, something of the creature has changed direction. Um, but I don't really see what that adds. It doesn't. Nothing. It, nothing seems to happen with that. No, it doesn't seem to have any bearing at all. Um, apart from no, in fact, the, I mean, we don't know where that church is. It could have. That church could have just been unluckily on the straight line. Well, I think there's 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 a bit in it where it says how yeah it'll come it'll pass near that wall. He said the copper says to says to Brown Derby, and he just says like you know you, you know it'll pass within sort of you know two you know two hundred meters of here in a couple of minutes. Yeah, and it, you know, it's fairly near and anyway. It doesn't seem to you know, add that much more. It's, if they'd have made oh god the you know the church is in its path or, or something. Mm. But, I'm not sure. That that was it, it. It was probably just it, it was probably just a random bit of a random line in a way, just to add a little bit, excitement add, in in the moment. Add a bit more tension, um, but they try and up the stakes when it's explained that they, they Royston thinks the ne- its next target will be an experimental nu- nu- nuclear power station, and he's got to get get through in Venice. Like thousands, thousands will die. Yeah, that's a good example of sort of off-screen threat that's too big to show, but whoa. Um, mm. Yeah. That's it. Well, you need that. You need that kind of raising of the stake. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So in, Royston, in Royston's workshop, while he's battling to save Inverness, he's experimenting with the scanners, uh, and it's seemingly successful, which is which is handy. But the, at the end, the element explodes, and it's a big explosion. And it's, we're told that the the radioactive material is only the size of a pinhead. And look at the size of that explosion. Imagine what happens if the if the blob explodes. Um, you know, it'll it'll kill everyone. Huh. Um, but um, uh, Peter says it could be because the scanners went out of out, out, out of sync, and not unreasonably, Royston says, "Yeah, but you know, could have been that. Could have been a million other things. But you know." But it could have been that, so we'll, we'll we haven't got we haven't got to worry. And then McGill says, "Well, you know, we've got we've got everything set up for you." When? When did they build those? You know, the big versions of the scanners that they. That is a bit of a plot hole. I mean, it's uh, similar to to what Howard said. It's that case, because the plot is racing along at this point. Yeah, there's no way of actually going. Hang on, because you don't have time to think that. Generally, I, I I'll let the how does McGill know that there are two soldiers on guard? As just it doesn't matter. We just need like it's it's not a big or enough. He does. It sets up the, the excuse me the peril for the for the two guards. But Royston's gone back to his workshop to try and work on this experiment, and the next thing we know, they've already made a full scale version of his. Of his of his scanners, yeah. If I if I was the script doctor there, I think I probably would have established that these things existed and that, that they've been repurposed and somehow yeah. adapted to kind of fit Royston's theory. And they would have had some other 
Basti said, oh, they're, they're a kind of radar device or something. Or has he been working on those for the start and they don't quite work? Then he goes back to yeah. his workshop to yes. work on it. Or, That's or, or, it. Or have a montage in a later film. Obviously, this isn't something you'd have in the 50s, but, you know, by the 1980s, they'd have a montage for Do, that. A, a they... Rocky montage. Something like that. A science montage. Or yes, science. Men in goggles. A karate, a karate kid. Yes, like, indeed. A karate kid training montage as they all make the big scanners. You're the best around. <laughs> yeah. Moving spanners and putting things That's in. That's it. Oh, it's a case of, oh, ironically, that very effect that we were trying to eliminate, now we need it. <laughs> that would be... That would, that would, that would be very good. How about that? So the army move these two giant scanners uh, into place and yeah, make sure you keep them in sync, army people. Um, <laughs> who are presumably quite quite a fair at moving, uh, you know, operating these things that they've never. Before. What does keep them in sync actually mean in practical terms? It doesn't matter. We'll live with it. Um, but Royston preps a jeep with radioactive bait to lure the creature out from the fissure into the path of the scanners, but. The technician can't start the jeep, so so Peter gets. Well, it's bogged goes, down in the mud. No, not yet. Not yet. He can't start it. Oh. His the technician's like right. Don't forget to drive it up there. No more than fifteen feet uh, from the fissure, and then and it comes out floor it. But he can't start it. Can't start it. And then Peter goes in it and goes. Oh, give me a go. Starts first time and yeah. Well, the technician's sick. Is he? He, you know, couldn't... Oh, no, I can't start... I can't start the vehicle to do my horrible, dangerous job. Oh, you did. Wow. You better do it then, didn't you? I'm off. <laughs> He's, it, everyone's setting Peter up. To, everyone's trying to kill Peter. This is... <laughs> un, this is... Un, this is yeah, this is a unsaid plot device throughout... Yeah, it's a subplot through, through, throughout, throughout this. Everyone hates the director so much. And Peter, like, they all pretend to be Peter's mate. They already hate Peter. He just gets in the way and tries to be a scientist. He's not a scientist. He wants to be a scientist. They hate. They hate Peter. They hate his dad, and they want him dead. That's how I'm reading that. <laughs> I like that. I think it brings the film a lot more texture. It does. Yeah. Boyston yeah, <laughs> just thinks this guy's a prick. I want him out of the way. They want to. Anyway, Adam. Sorry, Peter drives the jeep uh, to the to the fisher. He's driven it too close. The silly bastard. No. No. Get back, you fool! Get back! What does what does what does the foot matter? And then, oh, here comes the here comes the blob. It senses it senses the the radioactive material on the back of the jeep. Ah, oh, it's stuck in mud. Oh, here comes the creature. Ah, oh, it's stuck in mud. And this, I'm not. They get away with this, and it's well shot. And it's closely with the with the um, lowering him into the fissure and then bringing him up again. That's a bit of tension. But you're three minutes from the end. Uh, you know, it's, you know, we've already had this guy in peril once it, when he could have when he could have died. Uh, he's not he's not going to die, and I think it fails. It's trying to oh, will he get out of it? Will he get out of it? Will he? Get, yes, he'll get out of. Ah, oh, he gets out of it. Yeah, I don't think we're ever really that worried. No, no. I think they try they 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 try and play with that um, a bit a, a, a bit a bit too long. So Peter, you know, drives drives the jeep into place. The blob follows him. Uh, the scanners get set on. They do stay in sync. That's handy. And I assume that's why, why, although the blob is now massive and glowing white, all that radiation. So presumably everyone's going to die because uh, that's how that's not how radiation works in this film. Um, 
the creature blows up, but the explosion isn't that big in comparison to you know, the the scale of the the explosion in the in the in in the um, workshop. And I'm assuming that's because the the scanners don't go out of sync. And if they had, it would essentially be a nuclear explosion or something. I think that's it. I think, yeah. thankfully, the soldiers did keep them in sync. That's that's good. I'm glad the soldiers. Glad the soldiers did that. Glad they knew. Glad they knew what to do. I don't even know what that means in practical terms, but they did. That's that's the that's 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 the, that's the important thing. But then there's the curious downbeat ending. Do they go? Oh, brilliant, Adam! It works. Your plan worked, and it's like, yeah, brilliant. We're all alright. The creature's gone. Everything's gone. And even though. Uh, that creature was highly radioactive, and we're all standing. Essentially, we're standing next to a we're standing next to an exposed reactor. We're standing like three feet away. Is the, yeah, the, indeed. Like they're all they're, they're all going to die of cancer. Literally standing years. like sixteen Every, feet away from the from the jeep. Yeah, I was about to say, I was about to say everyone everyone will die of this. Everyone, every character in this film will die of cancer within five years. But it's the fifties; they're all smoking and drinking anyway, and that's probably the case. <laughs> yeah, it's happen, regardless anyway. of whether or not uh, they had a radioactive blob in their back garden. But the curious ending is just after that there's a second explosion in the fissure and Adam goes well that shouldn't have happened the end it is a very curious end that that second explosion it's very it's a bit half-hearted it's almost like so they just had a bit we've got a few more smoke bombs we've not used yet so we'll just set those what was that oh that shouldn't have happened the end but what is it supposed to signify? If like he, there's an un, they're unsure, we've given the idea that other creatures will try again. We haven't seen the last of this, but none of that, none of it's said, and that's a second explosion caused by what? Um, In a way, it, I think it would have been better. I mean, even though it's a corny cliche itself, if somebody had said, you know, is this the end? Yeah, P- Professor, and. Uh, that I th- even that I think would have been preferable to a weird little little explosion and uh, Royston looking worried. Unless that sort of ending is very Quatermass, isn't it? The sort of like moment where Quatermass pops up and goes, "Oh, but is this the end?" I mean, actually going back to my Godzilla-sized hole, it's a very very big hole. Never say that again. Stories Hal. deep. Yeah, I know, right? Um, I didn't. I didn't specify the size of the hole. Give me some space. Um, going back to that, Godzilla ends with them destroying Godzilla with the oxygen destroyer bomb. Which incidentally, the Maverick scientist creates a doomsday weapon, but commits suicide rather than so it will die with him. Rather than you know see another doomsday weapon other than in the world, and he kills the original Godzilla, and then. The naturalist, who's the not maverick scientist, says, "Yeah, but as long as people are doing atomic bomb tests, it's going to be back. We're going to see another one." Mm-hmm. And that inevitability is part of the genre in that respect, isn't it? It's like that sense is like, "Oh yes, we've stopped. We've stopped the threat against the human race." Pause. Maybe this I'm... time. It, it is something of a standard with a lot of 50s science fiction films. Some, I mean, I've seen some films. I think The Incredible She-Beast, I think it's called, that literally ends with a huge question mark coming towards the camera <laughs> at the end. And like a 1980s Doctor Who costume. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, actually, you mentioned Godzilla. I was going to say the scientist, the nuclear scientist in Godzilla, in that first Godzilla film, is very much in the crater mast kind yes. of mold. He is a conscientious, he is very, he's in awe to some extent of the forces he is exploring and he, he feels it very deeply. And, and but, but he, of course, commits suicide so that the weapon dies with him. But also, there's a, having said that, there is a wonderful scene where in his first appearance, someone says, do you know any Germans? And he just goes, no, I do not know any German people and I've never spoken to a German. In such a way as to make you think, yeah, you did naughty things in the Second World War. Mm. Did you know this film was released in, in Japan, first of all? I did not know that. Good yeah. heavens, really? Ahead of its UK release, yeah, it was it was shown in Japan and apparently was um, a box office hit. Dangers that of radiation, folks. Me, but it's interesting. I have had a. Th- I mean, they, they probably, I mean, that whole against that fear of nuclear holocaust. Mm. Yes, indeed. I wonder, just going back to Royston's um, final line, that shouldn't have happened. I wonder if that's actually Dean Jagger out of character. Oh, what, you mean that that's like an accidental explosion? Is that explosion meant to go off? That shouldn't have happened. It would be a nice thought if that was another ad lib that Leslie Norman decided to do. (laughs) (laughs) I I felt felt that the ending of this film was probably the most disappointing part of it, to be honest. From the, The whole climactic scene is presented basically in essentially a 20 yard square of mud and which just because you know um given the running time that you know it's gonna it's go it's going to work um it i mean even quater mass 2 sort of ends when it ends there isn't really there isn't an epilogue to to to, mm. to the action even you know the most the first quater mass film gets is you know just seeing a rocket blasting off sometime later showing Quite, Don Levy's Quater Mass has learned nothing. Um, yeah, what are you going to do? Which I do start like, again. Yeah. Um, I do like that ending. I think it is a really good ending to the first film. I like that that he hasn't learned. It's that it's actually, in a way, it's almost like Quater Mass is the monster, really. Oh yeah, and indeed as well as we as we as, as we've covered up. the role of the role of Quater Mass in that film was ostensibly to be the villain, um, compared to com, 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 compared to the other leads. And then um, we did actually approach that when we talked about um, the Quatermass experiment. In fact, that, that was yeah, indeed. In, 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 in and yes, when this film launched uh, in the UK, which was it was a it 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 it, 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 it was a success. Um, but I'm still uh, agog that um, at least I think in the ABC cinemas, um, this was. Uh, this film was paired with um, Clouseau's um, classic Les Diaboliques. It's quite ironic, really, considering what uh, an influence Les Diaboliques had on Hammer. I mean, in the later years of Hammer, they must have remade that French horror several times, with different variations, with the likes of uh, Scream of Fear, and fear mm. of the night, and uh, paranoia, which are all are very much on that template. And yes. it was well, and it was well received. 
um, it got generally good reviews. Which is good. I think it deserves, yeah, good reviews because although on one level it's a very straightforward monster movie compared to a Quatermass film, which always had that kind of a Quatermass story has got a, a, this humanity running through it, and in all those stories, the professor wins through. I mean, he appeals the in the TV's version anyway. He sort of appeals to the humanity of the alien creature to defeat it and similarly reaches out to the humanity of the possessed humans and then the the with the pit again it's that thing about the it's man's nature that's at the core of it in the case of x the unknown it's a straightforward monster that's a danger and it needs a scientific solution and then that's it which is the main difference being this doesn't this isn't written by Neil or at least from a story by Neil. Mm. And I think that's the, that's the missing element that kind of stops this reaching reaching the heights of the the, the Quatermass trilogy for Hammer. Possibly, yeah. No, I think that's right. This also has sort of just a touch of the Gothic about it that's that will creep that will obviously become Hammer's uh, mm. um, uh, trademark and like. Quatermass 2, uh, this is, you know, um, obviously it has a different director, this is only Leslie Norman's only, uh, only, only hammer, um, but it's shot by the same, the, uh, the, the same guy, it's um, Gerald Gibbs, sorry, um, James Bernard scored uh, the Quatermass films, and he mm. scores this, both do really, um, really, 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 really effective jobs, and um, I think it's a, its simple nature means that it, uh, I think it holds up um, as still, uh, I think it's a, in, as I often use the term, a few, it's, 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 a, it's a hugely fun piece. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I enjoy it. Definitely, definitely. I think of the non it's I think it's the best of Hammer's non Quatermass science fiction films. Yeah. What was that one yeah. on the moon? Yeah, Moon Zero Two. Moon Zero Two. Yeah, that's that's. A, Which is, you know, it's okay if you want a, a bit of sixties kind of camp, but uh, and then there was the four sided triangle, which is a, uh, a bit dreary. Now, I mean that that's that's dated quite badly in a way that X the Unknown, uh, hasn't dated as much. Well, I suppose it helps that X the Unknown is set in is set in contemporary Britain, so. There's not obvious dating on people, say, wearing suits. And, you know, a black mm. Mariah will date um, more forgivingly than a futuristic um, spacesuit. Or... That is true. It's still it's grounded. It's grounded in the reality. It's it's the it's the unknown horror reaching into the everyday, which is you know a staple of a staple of Quatermass. It's those things that Sangster has taken that the work to its favour. It doesn't. It's just it does. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a more shallow piece, but yet it's uh, it's still it's still it's still very effective and very fun. Well, thank you both, Gareth and and Howard, for that look at X the Unknown, and um, we'll be back next time to look at Hammer's Quatermass too, with uh, Brian Donlevy uh, shouting and murdering his way across the English countryside. But that's for another time. <laughs> Thank you very much. And goodbye. <laughs> Thanks, fellas. Goodbye. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. 
So for the next episode, we'll be looking at Hammer's Quatermass 2 with writer and producer James Goss. My thanks to Gareth for his time, and also to Steve Horry and Andrea Kinnear. You can visit Birdcast on our website, birdcast.room207press.com, or find Birdcast on Facebook. On Twitter, it's at birdcastcalling, or you can email us at birdcastcalling at gmail.com. Birdcast is presented by John Deere and Howard Ingham, and is edited by Emma Cooper. Thanks for listening. Thank you.